you're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Connor Hookstra, a research scientist at NVIDIA and host of the ADSP podcast, short for Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programs. We talk about how programming languages get popular, how programming has changed over time, going as far back as COBOL, how large language models can and can't be productively used in programming today, and even speculate on the future of programming a bit. And now, how programming has changed. Connor, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you do C++ at NVIDIA, and you also know a lot of things about a lot of different programming languages. And this kind of led me to wonder, is C++ the dominant programming language for this sort of hardware and GPU stuff for the foreseeable future? Or are there any potential successors or competitors to C++ in that space that you see like maybe actually getting some usage in industry? It's an interesting question. It's funny because on my other podcast, we actually just had an episode that it definitely didn't go viral, but it's probably one of the most viewed in the last six months, where the title of it very inflammatorily was, Is C++ Dying? And (laughs) both my co-hosts and I, Bryce, you know, TLDR is that we think that C++ is not in a good position to have sustained success you know, it's if, if nothing changes, I think it's going to go the way of COBOL. And that is, you know, a lot hmm. of people get upset when you say a language is dying or something. Like C++ is not going anywhere. It's not going to like in two years or 20 years or maybe even, you know, 50 or 100, there's still going to be C++ code around. And if you want to have a job in C++, you can definitely do that. I think the same way that you can still go and be a COBOL programmer and I think get like remunerated quite well for doing that kind of work. Oh, sure. So it's just more to say that like, if you look at the way that sort of languages in the C++ space are evolving and you compare that to C++, you know, I don't think it looks great in terms of how our language is evolving. And I mean, I should also note that Jason Turner, who is the former co-host of CppCast, which is a very big podcast, which just came back recently after sort of having a year hiatus, but it is under new co-hosts now. He has a YouTube channel called C++ Weekly, which has been going on for 400 weeks now. And he released an episode with the exact same title, Is C++ Dying? And he basically points out that there are tons of like browsers, large-scale applications, Microsoft Word and you know the Microsoft Suite. All of these huge, massive code bases and applications are all written in C++. I kind of take issue with that in that like just because the sort of mainstay browsers and programs right now are all written in C++ doesn't mean that in 20 years that's going to be the same case. Like at the height of the Roman Empire, you could have looked at like, you know, oh, look, we've got a lot of countries. This is great. <laughs> but that that's not necessarily an indication of sustained success going forward decades. Anyways, I kind of haven't even really answered your question, which was, I think, with respect to NVIDIA specifically. Well, let's talk about that for a sec. Because so something that I, I've thought about, like you mentioned COBOL as an example, Something that I thought about is a lot of banks today still run on COBOL. And what I've heard is that a lot of these banks that are running COBOL today were actually relatively early adopters of COBOL in terms of the grand scheme of businesses. And they kind of got in early and got these really big COBOL code bases that ran on mainframes that you know they're very dependent on. And as a consequence of this, they found it very hard to migrate off of that, even though in a lot of cases they would like to. They would like to get onto a different language they've just found it kind of too difficult to. And so it seems to me that that's an interesting example of, I don't know if those banks 
I mean, certainly it's been more than 20 years, but I don't know if those banks are ever going to get off of COBOL. But that doesn't mean that COBOL will never go away. That just means that COBOL won't go away until those banks are replaced by other companies that came up without that legacy infrastructure. So I have this sort of hypothesis that one of the ways that a programming language that is that entrenched, that is like has that big of a code base at a particular organization, maybe dies out on like the greater sort of sphere of programming is not so much that everybody moves away from it, but that enough people stop using it for new projects that eventually all of the existing organizations that are using it, either maybe they do successfully move away. I'm not saying like zero banks move away from COBOL, but they just eventually go extinct by virtue of the fact that very few businesses last forever, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love your talk. At the time, it was a probably you know one of my favorite talks. I mean, it still is. The why isn't functional programming the norm? No, uh, every, every time when you're on a podcast, either as a host or a guest, and you say, oh, you know, one of my most viewed of all time, I always think you're going to say that one, and then you end up saying a JavaScript one, which I think I've seen as well. <laughs> but I'm always like, oh, he's about to say, why isn't functional programming the norm? But it's never that one. But I love thinking about it and hypothesizing, you know, why that actually is. And then so I have like a programming language rank aggregator website that averages all the different programming language rankings. It's called plrank.com. And I was going to mention one of those sites is Languish, which is put together by Tom Palmer. He's the context-free individual. He has a YouTube channel where I don't know, actually, you might have been interviewed. He's interviewed a few different, I'm not sure if it was you or maybe it was the Zig creator, Andrew Kelly. He's had a few people on. I'm actually going to, uh, funny you mentioned that. I'm, I'm actually going to be recording an episode with him for the first time later this week. Oh, wow. There you go. Look at that. Small, I mean, yeah. I was going to say it's a small <laughs> world, but I guess we all operate in the same space. Right. <laughs> And his site is based on both Stack Overflow and GitHub metrics, I believe. But I think it would be interesting to look not just at the number of repositories where the main top language is X versus how many new projects are being created. Because I would guess that there are many more Rust projects being started than there are C++ projects. I think I just saw a YouTube video that was by Let's Get Rusty, which is like one of the top Rust channels on YouTube. And they were saying that Microsoft has just committed to like a $10 million investment in Rust, where mm. they had already donated like a million to the Rust Foundation. And that $10 million investment is to make Rust like a first class language at Microsoft. Oh, wow. Which is a pretty big announcement, like in the space yeah. of IDEs and dev tool companies, like Microsoft is more than just a dev tool company, but for them to be saying that basically, I'm not sure if they're going to create like a Visual Studio version for Rust or something like that. But anyways, there's a lot more hype around Rust. And I don't think that's just the uh, Rice Rust evangelism strike force. I think there's actually like, <laughs> there's like, oh, a for lot sure. Of, there's a lot of good reasons why people are excited about Rust. And, and yeah, so I remember seeing on, I don't remember which one it was, this was a while ago, but I remember seeing on a programming language ranking website, which caveat, like, this is hard to measure. Like, yeah, <laughs> whatever yeah. methodology you come up with, it's like, you know, that there's going to be gaps. But I remember one of the things that I saw was that it said that Dart was more popular than Rust. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, now I just don't believe your rankings. Like, <laughs> that, it's not like, I mean, it's possible. Like, maybe I have a misconception, but that's just really hard for me to believe. Because, yeah, Rust is definitely a language that is getting a lot of recognition and usage. And having it be a first-class language of Microsoft is a really rare thing. Because when I think about what are the languages that 
big companies use and where do those languages come from? So like Microsoft obviously does, everybody does a lot of C and C++. I mean, I guess mainly C++. Like all the big companies do a lot of C++. Then like at Google, they do Java, but at Microsoft, they do C Sharp instead of Java or, you know, for the things that I guess Google would use Java for. Similarly at, I believe Netflix does Java. Facebook does a lot of hack and nobody else does hack. Google does Go, nobody else does Go. Eh, that's not true. I think Uber has like 120 million lines of Go or something like that. Uh, okay, that's, so that's fair. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not thinking of Uber like in that same tier, but that's fair. But I guess the point that I was, where I was kind of going with that is, it's interesting to see how companies will sort of choose languages that were invented here, but not really languages that were like invented at competitors necessarily unless those were already sort of options when they were coming up. So actually, like, Go at Uber is an interesting case because, I mean, when Uber was a small company, they were sort of like, well, you know, we, we don't have any languages invented here, so, like, whatever. Then as they grow, their usage of Go becomes maybe a thing. Stripe and Ruby. Obviously, there's been a lot of companies, a lot of startups that started out built on, like, Ruby and Rails. Some of them moved away from it. So, like, Twitter, I guess, moved away. I don't know if they're still using it anywhere, but I know they like famously rewrote to Scala and then I don't know how, how complete of a rewrite that was. Stripe is still big into Ruby and they've like added type checking with Sorbet. Shopify was like famously one of the first like big Rails shops. Airbnb, I believe, is a big Rails shop, if I remember right. But then you look at like, despite all that, imagine Google adopting Ruby as a first class. Just imagine Microsoft doing that. That's just really hard for me to imagine. So the fact that they would choose to, at this late in the game, when they're this huge of a tech giant, to say, we're going to bring in a new language as a first-class thing in our stack, that's so rare. I mean, that <laughs> for companies the size of Microsoft or Google or Amazon, that just doesn't happen very often. And so I think that, to me, is something that carries a lot more rate than whatever particular methodology you want to look at in terms of GitHub or Stack Overflow or something like that. It's like, this is a big deal. This is something that's not unprecedented, but it's super rare. Yeah, and I think it's followed by, like, I have two things to say. Is, I think JetBrains also, I don't know if it was several months ago, but they announced an IDE specifically for Rust. I think it's called yeah. Red Rover, but I could be wrong about that. But they've announced some, I think the acronym is RR on their little logo. And okay. so that's two major dev tool companies that are basically announcing, I don't actually know what Microsoft announced if they're going to have like a Visual Studio Rust, but a $10 million investment is a really big deal. And then JetBrains, you know, a leader in the IDE space, you know, saying that they're going to, because I think they just had like a Rust extension to the C Lion, which is the C++. So they had like some kind of plugin that you could attach to your C Lion editor and you'd get some amount of Rust support. But now they're building, you know, a whole thing. Um, so yeah, it's Rust has a, a lot of momentum. And the second thing I was going to add is, or go ahead. Just to clarify, so when you say Microsoft's making it a first-class thing, I took that to mean that it's like Google has these like four languages or something that are like first-class yeah, at Google that you're like allowed to write. I thought you meant what Microsoft is doing in terms of their dev stack, but is it that or is it actually just that they're talking about like first-class in the products that they offer, like the tools like Visual Studio and whatnot? I had the understanding from the video that it was both. Like it is oh, okay. yeah. already they've been folding Rust into some of their product verticals. Yeah, I've heard that. I think that like the $10 million investment is, you know, it's going to be one of these, not to say it's the same as AWS, but they built stuff for themselves and then they, you know, re released it to the public and made money off of it because why not, right? And that worked out very well for Amazon famously. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. The, the other thing I was going to mention is that 
take all the rankings with a grain of salt. There's a lot of people that follow me on Twitter that don't understand that I'm trolling most of the time. Like I built the website (laughs) just because I thought it would be a cool thing to look at because depending on the report that gets released, some of them are just text-based. They all have different graphics. And I just want programming language logos with like a 1 to 10 or a 1 to 20. But you can choose to ignore whichever of the seven sites you want. And so every once in a while, I will just go and choose TIOBE and none of the other ones. And that is like, it's the worst ranking. I think TypeScript is ranked like 47th right now. Sure, and yeah. Cobol and Fortran are like the fastest growing languages, which like, there might be an argument <laughs> for Fortran because modern Fortran is a thing. But however they're doing their measuring, it's clearly flawed. I mean, so I always take these screenshots month to month and it'll show that, you know, Fortran just broke into the top 10 and COBOL like soon to do the same. And then yeah. people actually think I'm being serious about it. And hopefully a couple of those people are listening and they realize that I'm just doing it because it's going to get a reaction out of people online. Well, you know, what's funny. I did this for some talk a long time ago. Actually, I think <laughs> I, I should go rewatch that. But I think maybe why is functional programming the norm did that. But I used to look at Google Trends for languages, and I think TOB or Tiobe or T-I-O-B-E, I don't know how to pronounce it, but that index, I think their methodology, if I remember right, is they search for, in quotes, programming language name space tutorial. The idea being that however many people are searching for tutorials in that language is some proxy for new people coming to the language. Although I just realized that in our new Rock website, which is going to come out in like a week or two, or maybe depending on when you're hearing this podcast, maybe it's already out, it's going to have a link like the first link in the nav bar is tutorial. So does that mean we're going to get penalized because people don't need to search for it because it's just right there and easy to find? Anyway, but what I thought was funny was that if you look at that methodology, or I think I also looked at, if you just put in the name of the programming language, Google Trends lets you select like, oh, I mean the programming language or something right, like yeah. that. If you look at the trends for what are consensus, the most popular programming languages like Java and Python and this and that, they're just like downward slopes that makes them look like they're just like falling off a cliff. I think the same is probably true of C and C++. I don't know if that's true of Rust, but it kind of seems like there's something that that's measuring, but it's not popularity. (laughs) Right, yeah. Maybe it's like buzz or amount of discussion happening or amount of articles being written about it. I don't know. But I was really shocked because like when I realized that when I had been looking at those, I was looking at things like, oh, like Ruby. Oh, you have this big peak around 2005 when Rails comes out and then it kind of tapers off over time. So that graph matched my intuitive sense of like what had been happening with Ruby. So I was like, cool, this seems like a good proxy. But what I failed to do was to go and test that hypothesis with other cases, like sort of controls maybe, where it's like, well, okay, I for sure know that like Java has gotten a lot more popular over time. And does the graph show the same thing there? It's like, oh no, it totally doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. These things are super tricky, right? Because where people go to ask questions, like, I mean, not even to mention ChatGPT now, like I probably, for every 20 questions I would Google, now maybe one of them, I'll actually go to Google. And that's because I know that my GPT model that I'm using has hallucinated or is is giving me a wrong answer. But like the incredible 10x or 100x that you get from GPT models is basically rendered like Stack Overflow, like unuseful. But I was going to say like, you know, Swift has like Swift forums and Rust compiler messages are so good, half the time you just do what the error message say. You don't need to go and ask a question. Just going and looking at how many questions on Stack Overflow, it's going to be a a proxy, but it's going to underrepresent certain languages where error messages are better or they've got some specific forum or community for asking questions. So, I mean, all of this stuff is very wishy-washy and I think it's more of a just a for fun thing. And in general, you can see trends like, whether or not Swift is lower than it should be, if it has gone up or down, 
you know, typically means something, but it's more just like for fun. I think it's more interesting, like chatting about what is it actually, which is what your talk does, right? What actually does make a language successful? And I think, you know, as time goes on, that changes, right? The more and more time goes on, the more and more code exists and the, the more and more friction there is from going from an existing language that has 40 years of history with a bunch of Someone once said that it's not legacy code, it's revenue generating code. Like there's this stigma associated with code that is out there. But a lot of the times, you know, it works. It makes companies money. To call it legacy code is kind of unfair. You know, at the time people made decisions and probably they were good decisions and, you know, things changed, et cetera. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, now definitely something that is a big factor today that was not such a big factor, let's say 20 years ago is ecosystems. It used to be that I remember back in the early web development days, one of the big selling points of Perl was literally just it has a package manager. Mm-hmm. And like that was considered a Perl thing. And like, you know, JavaScript didn't have one. <laughs> there was no NPM. The Python didn't have one. There was no PIP, or I guess Python has several now. But now they're ubiquitous. Like every language has one. And so whenever you're making a new language, always one of the considerations is like, well, how do you work around the fact that you don't have an ecosystem yet? Like, what can people do to make up for that fact in this new language? So there's always got to be some answer to that question. You know, whether it's like direct FFI or something else, or every language does that a little bit differently. But you can't just say, like, I don't know, just wait till everybody writes all the code from scratch and then we'll just rebuild everything. It's uh, not really an acceptable answer anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's part of the reason I think that Python is just going to continue to win, like the rich get richer because C doesn't make my top five languages. But even for the languages that do make my top five, half the time, not even half the time, 90% of the time when I'm trying to actually do something or build something, I go and use Python. And I am not happy doing it. Like I want that functional data flow piping, you know, just a bunch of operations to each other. You can't do that in Python. Some things are methods, some things are functions, some things are built in, some things are in a library. It has everything. I can write the code I need to write. And a lot of the times I can just invoke some library and save myself a ton of time. But it's because of that. It's because of the ecosystem to do 2D graphics, to do data science. Everything is there. And honestly, the best code is the code I don't have to write because (laughs) when I'm trying to get something done, I just want to get something done, Um, which is why it's so hard to compete with Python. You've seen what Chris Latner's doing with Mojo and that he basically in a podcast said, I went from Apple to Google to try and do Swift for TensorFlow and we underestimated meeting people where they were at. We showed that Swift was better for all these different reasons, but people just have inertia. And a lot of these data scientists, they're not PL people. They don't care what language they're writing in. They just want to get stuff done. Totally. And they basically decided, like, all right, well, we're throwing our hands up and we're going to go do a new thing, which is just a superset of Python. And it's a completely different story, which is probably not going to be as nice as what the Swift story for TensorFlow was. This, once again, it's this, you know, how do you actually make a language that it's going to be a reason to go and drop what they're using and use this new thing? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. Coincidentally, we were just talking about this in Rock Zulip recently about uh, like Rock for data science and like potential applications there. And so there were a couple of interesting challenges. So Rock compiles pretty high performance code, especially numeric code. So the thought is like, well, this is something where you can have a nice type system. It's a very simple language. And yet you get good performance sort of out the box. Wouldn't that mean that it would be good for things like data science and scientific computing and numeric stuff, linear algebra and whatnot? And a couple of people who have a background in this or were interested in using Rock for this were asking about like, hey, you know, does Rock support operator overloading? And my answer was like, no, but you know, let's talk about it. And so they made, I think, a pretty compelling case that if Rock wants to be nice for those use cases, we actually do need operator overload. 
it's not just like you can't even build a matrix type into the standard library because and give that like have like plus and minus and stuff like that work on that. And it turns out that plus and minus are not just a nice to have like <laughs> having those work is actually kind of a big deal for being able to like look at a complicated equation, and actually understand what it's doing. If you turn that into function calls, like prefix function calls, it gets a lot harder to spot errors. But it also turns out that depending on what type of work you're doing, you actually might want a different data structure to represent your matrix. Because in some cases, having a matrix, and maybe you would know better than I would, but apparently there are certain matrix operations. I want to say it was like multiply or dot product or something where if you pre-rotate one of the arguments, I forget what the, obviously not a data science, <laughs> not a linear algebra guy, but basically it was like, if you do it the way that math wants you to do it, you're missing out on a really big performance optimization. Whereas if you make one of the arguments to the multiplication sort of expect a matrix that's already been rotated, then it runs way faster. But now you have to sort of pre-rotate it. And if you're trying to use it in the normal mathy way, you're going to get the wrong answer. And so it's like, well, some people want that and some people want it to work like in math. They don't care about the performance benefit. So you can't just pick one data structure that does both. Anyway, so we talked about that. And then another challenge is that by design, the way that you do interop through Rock with existing languages is through platforms and specifically using effects. So they have to be wrapped as tasks, which is really inconvenient if you're trying to do interop for arithmetic. And my answer to that has always been, well, you don't need to do interop for arithmetic unless you, you can just port the algorithm, basically, has been my sort of stance in the sense that we do math as fast as anybody else. Like we don't have box numbers. You can get a plain integer add and subtract and whatever arithmetic operation out of Rock if you want to. So there shouldn't be any advantage to using C or whatever else. And then I found out that there are these linear algebra libraries like LaPac and Blaz, I guess, that are half a million lines of Fortran with a bunch of inline assembly sprinkled in for extra optimizations. Okay, well, there are no plans to do inline assembly, that's for sure. So maybe we could compete with the Fortran, but maybe not the inline assembly. But then at the end of the day, somebody brought up a really good point, which is <laughs> this isn't how they phrased it, but it's basically like, okay, but how many data scientists are going to use a programming language whose name does not begin with P and end with Python? Like that's like whatever else your feature set is. You sure do have the problem of not being Python or a superset of Python. So at the end of the day, what if we added operator overloading and we figured out some solution to this like, you know, inline assembly, half a million lines of Fortran thing, maybe even added like CFFI, which is something I super, super don't want to do. You know, we do all this stuff, make all these changes to the language, then it's like, well, maybe a couple people, you know, use it as hobbyists, but it never really gets any traction. That's not to say that like, that doesn't matter. Like it definitely matters if like people are using the language and enjoying it for some use case, but there has to be some consideration of what are we unlocking in exchange for these, what I consider to be pretty serious language design changes. Yeah, I mean, there are languages out there that are trying to compete with Python and the NumPy and Pandas. I mean, the one that comes Julia to mind is... Was, well, uh, Julia is very specific in that, like, they're a scientific computing company, specifically the one I was thinking of was Elixir by Jose Valim, who oh, I know sure, yeah. you've talked to a couple times on this podcast. Yes. And they're building the NX library, which is, I think, a direct competitor to the NumPy work that in Pandas. And on top of that, I think they're building that on top of Jax, which is a technology out of Google that enables you to target different hardware stacks. So you can target with just like, if you build something on top of Jax, you can hypothetically target TPUs, CPUs, and GPUs. So I mean, like the promise there is pretty big. But yeah, once again, it's like, I mean, I follow Elixir quite closely, but I'm not in the community. So I don't actually know like how much uptake has there been. Sure. Because, you know, obviously, if you can win a slice of that pie, it's going to be massive. But the question is exactly what you said. How many data scientists are going to reach for something other than Python? I do not have the answer to that question. But Bryce and I on my other podcast, we talk about all the time is this sort of 10x, you need to offer developers 
some 10x improvement. I think in the data science case, it's even harder because there's so many things that like data scientists don't care about. All they really care about is getting their work done. So like, can you 10x how fast they're getting their work done? Yeah. And I think that's probably what they care most about. You know, performance is another big thing, but there's been a lot of work that's been put into accelerating NVIDIA themselves. Like we went and built basically GPU versions of NumPy and Pandas because we realized, sure, we can offer our own technology stacks, CUDA, C++, etc., But there's probably a huge slice of folks that if we just went to them and said, hey, you're using NumPy, you're using Pandas, would you like to run it faster? And all you need to do is buy a couple GPUs. They'd be like, that sounds fantastic. We've been running this model for a month. And if you speed Mm -hmm. it up, it'll take like, you know, 10 minutes. They're more than happy to go buy a couple GPUs. And like, so we have to go and do all of that work of replicating that technology. That's almost an easier sell for NVIDIA to put together like a team of 100 engineers and for us to build it than it is to convince folks that, hey, you might be able to get the same perf, if not more, increases, but you're going to need to do X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z. And it's a very hard sell to do that. I don't have the answers to these questions. It's just these are <laughs> observations of how the world works. Uh, was that something you worked on at NVIDIA? Or? Yeah, so that was the first three years. I've been at NVIDIA just over four years. So I guess two and a half to three years, I worked on a team called Rapids. Uh, if folks okay. are interested, they can check it out, rapids.ai. And I specifically worked on the GPU version of Pandas called QDF. The Q stands for CUDA and the DF stands for data frame. And it's not like one-to-one parity, but it is very close. And for a lot of examples, literally all it is is a matter of changing your import Pandas as PD to an import Pandas as, or import QDF as PD. So you can literally just change the import statement. And for a lot of examples, that'll work. And for the ones that don't, you just need to tweak here and there. And like as someone you know, I don't think it's been mentioned at this point, but you know, I am a huge fan of array languages and it's my favorite paradigm by far. I think it's a more elegant way of programming. It offers so much more to the user. And so you know, working on a team that's meeting people where they're at, it kind of breaks my heart. You know, it's, it was the second closest I've ever kind of had to my dream job because Pandas famously was influenced by the J language, which is a descendant of APL. APL. So like, yeah. The flavor of array languages is there. It exists, you know, there's an article online floating around called The Ghost of Iverson's APL or something. And it's talking about how NumPy is basically just like a misspelled APL from, you know, the 60s. And, uh, you know, so it breaks my heart in a sense that there's a nicer, more elegant, you know, more expressive way to program. But people aren't interested in that. But hey, Uh, sometimes you have to be realistic and just meet people where they're at. Code an APL on your free time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've also thought about this question a lot, Phil. How do you get across that sort of initial barrier of people adopting new languages? Because on the one hand, it's true that most projects in most companies use mainstream technologies and then continue to do so. But it's also true that new languages happen. Like if you said, I always think it's funny when people say stuff like, well, nobody's going to like make a new language that's successful or something like that. It's like, well, if you go back 20 years and you would say that, you would say like, well, Rust will never exist. That'll never take off. Or no one will ever use Go. That's never going to happen. The counterexamples are pervasive. Like any point in time, if you throw a dart in the history of programming, and at any point in that time, you make the claim, this is it. These are all the languages anyone's ever going to use. You're always wrong 100% of the time. Like that statement has never been correct. So maybe you think this is the first time that it's going to be correct. And this is the last set of programming languages that are mainstream until we're all just programming using our thoughts over directive brain whatever but i doubt it like probably not that's probably as incorrect as it always has been and so then like you said the question then becomes how do you get adoption 
And I definitely agree that I guess I don't think about it as 10x. It has to be something that's like really appealing. It's not just something that's I don't think about in terms of numbers. It has to be something where you think I just can't get that with what's out there. And I think one of the most encouraging examples of this, and I kind of go back to this a lot, but it's that initial how to build a blog engine in Ruby on Rails in 15 minutes video, because that catapulted Ruby into like a top 10 language, basically that one 15, 20 minute video. And I don't know if you've seen it or seen it recently, but I go back and rewatch it periodically. And the thing that's remarkable about it is mainly just tooling. It's writing a small number of commands and getting a bunch of functionality very quickly. Actually, it's like code generation, really, is kind of like the main thing that's going on there. And when people think of Rails, I don't think that's usually what people are talking about or thinking about these days. They're thinking more about like Active Record, the ORM, or like, oh, you get these like kind of cool, friendly experience where you type a method name and it turns out it's just there. You just guessed it and you're pleasantly surprised that it was available because they implement the same thing with like four different names increase the chances of that working which is a thing you could totally do or like they'll talk about the date systems where you can write five dot days dot ago and it just magically you know does the thing you wanted there's all these different things that people talk about with rails i very rarely hear people who talk about rails talk about oh i really like the code generation aspect but when i look at that video that's why he's able to build a blog engine in Ruby on Rails in 15 minutes. It's not really like any of those other things. It's that like he made something where you can get up and running very quickly because it's generating so much functionality, which he then goes through and, and tweaks you know, as he's going. And I think that sort of saving people time through tooling aspect of programming is really underexplored. That's a good example of it being done. But and I'm not saying it has to be just code generation. But there seems to be a lot of languages that have pretty similar pitches, but I don't really see anyone, you know, other than Rock in the future, <laughs> we're working towards it, having a plan of like, I've talked about this in the past a little bit, but just like this ecosystem of plugins where like you have editor tooling that just comes with your package. And that's a cultural norm and something that we've like baked into the language and also baked into the editor tooling with all that so that it's like not only is getting off-the-shelf tools really trivial, but also making your own is the goal that I like to say is it should be as easy to write a new editor extension for Rock as it is to write a function. Like you just press enter twice, you're on a new line and just start writing your tooling right after you're you're done with your function. And that just integrates in your editor in real time. And I don't even hear people attempting to do that, which is part of the reason I think we might have a chance of being successful at it is if you get to a point where that's the ecosystem and a video along the lines of build a blog engine and Ruby on Rails in 15 minutes starts going around where people are like, wow, I want that. I can't get that level. Look at all these disparate things that are doing all this work for me, all this tooling. I can't get anywhere close to that with any existing language. That seems like the type of thing to me that could plausibly give us a Rails moment if anything could. Do you have a vision for what this plugin ecosystem looks like in terms of like a bunch of code gen plugins? Or is this like people didn't understand the implications of the internet and the social media happened and it like, you know that there will be some world that exists of these plugins, but form of it, you're, you're not really sure. You just want to enable people to go and do it. So mainly I want to enable people to do it. And I very strongly suspect that this is one of those things. Like the reason I use the word underexplored is that it strikes me as the type of thing where if it were easy, people would surprise you with like what they came up with. But some of the ideas that I have in mind have to do with things that are currently sort of would be quite helpful, but are either too niche for IDEs or like general purpose language extensions, or you can try to do them with LLMs, but 
hallucination rate is like either kind of high or like unacceptably scary. Really easy example of this is generating a like a JSON decoder from your types. So we already do that with type inference. So you can just say like decode a user and just based on the type of that inferred user record type, we just generate a JSON decoder on the fly and we'll decode some JSON into that. But of course, sometimes it happens that you're working with a third party API and they're not giving you exactly what you want, like exactly the shape that you want. Or maybe they have some weird thing where sometimes they give you back this field and other times the field's missing and you want to substitute something else. You want to customize it somehow. So the idea is give away the person who's shipping the JSON package. In this case, his name is Luke Boswell. He already made it. <laughs> Luke can just write a little bit of code in his package that says, I'm going to describe a little context menu button that will appear in your editor. And you can just right click and say, extract the decoder, and it will just spit out the inferred one. And now you can tweak it really fast and easy. Now, I can already do something like that with an LLM. I'm not exactly sure how I would do that. If like push came to shove right now, I would probably just if I had like a type annotation for the user record, I would probably just paste it into chat GPT or now like a copilot chat and say like, hey, generate me a JSON decoder for this. The thing is, like, that's the type of thing where sometimes it does it right and sometimes it does it wrong. So certainly I'm going to double check its work. And depending on how complicated that thing is, I might be in for a, one of those situations I've had, not all the time, but like frequently enough that it's got some frustrating memories where I'm X amount of minutes or hours into trying to convince the LLM to give me exactly what I want. But I'm, <laughs> yeah. I definitely have crossed the point where it would have been a lot faster if I just did it myself from scratch. But at each step, I was like, I'm so close. I'm so close. I'm sure if I just try one more prompt detail that it'll get all the way there and I'll recoup all my time on this. And then it just like never quite gets there. So this seems like the type of thing where a term I've been using to conceptualize LLMs and I try to avoid saying AI because I think that's over general in this case, but LLMs and when I say LLMs, I guess I really mean like GPT-4, <laughs> how they can improve programmer productivity and how they can't or like where they come up short. And I think about it in terms of high reliability systems and low reliability systems. So like a high reliability system would be like a compiler. Every single time I run the compiler on the same piece of code, I expect it to output the same thing. If it doesn't, then I'm unpleasantly surprised. In contrast, if I gave an LLM my code base, and let's say the LLM doesn't have, you know, I think they have like built-in Python support in ChatGPT now. I gave it, you know, for some language where it didn't have the compiler already. And I was like, hey, turn this into machine code. I have basically zero confidence that it's going to be the machine code that I want if the code base is substantial. If it's page of code, okay, fine, maybe. But like, I'm not giving it our like 300,000 line of code rock compiler code base and being like, oh yeah, it'll put the right bytes out there. So that's a low reliability system. But historically, low reliability systems have been useful for a very small subset of programming tasks. I think maybe web search is probably the best example of something that was useful. You generally... Like, well, the same ish set of results every time you search, but like it kind of varies temporally. You know, as, as time passes, you get different results, things change, whatever. And they're kind of fuzzy. They're not really precisely giving you the answer you want, but it was useful. LLMs are like much less reliable than that, but they're way more useful than that overall. Like, definitely, I use web search to check the LLMs work instead of the other way around because it is more reliable, like what I, uh, a specific source or something. So, in this world, I think having things that are high reliability continues to be valuable, but only in cases where you don't already have sort of equivalent functionality from like a more general purpose, low reliability system. Yeah. 
I completely agree with all that. I think I recently in a internal NVIDIA meeting said that I just consider ChatGPT to be like a very, very high throughput worker, like intern or co-op that doesn't really care that much. And <laughs> so like 90% of the time you ask it to do something and if it knows how, it's done it instantly. And every once in a while though, like you need to know, like you're managing the intern and they, they didn't really do what they asked. So you guys, ah, that's not what I wanted. For people that don't think it's useful, like you're just not using it correctly. If you treat it with this very, very you know, high throughput worker, every once in a while is going to get stuff wrong. If you use it like that, you can increase your productivity by like an order of magnitude. And it's specifically when you were mentioning the, the Python you know, schemas, I actually did like exactly that. Like I had a couple hundred line Python program that I had written that I wanted to go faster. So I just pugged it into ChatGPT and said, hey, convert this Python to Rust. And it didn't work. But within like 20 minutes, I had it working. And the first thing that was wrong was that in Python, you don't need to worry about JSON schemas. They're just, you know, dynamic, whatever, you're good to go. And that was the first thing it tripped up on. It tried to make something up because it had no knowledge of it. And so very quickly, you can see by trying to compile the Rust code that this didn't work. So then I said, oh, sorry, my bad. I didn't give you, example, a JSON file. So I just literally copy and pasted my JSON. I was like, I didn't even have to tell it about the schema. I just said, this is what my JSON file looks like. And you, you know, redo what you did, but with the correct schema. And it nailed it. You said anecdotally, depending on what you want, it doesn't work. Like in my case, it happened to work. And then there was a couple other things that hallucinated, but I'm not enough of a Rust expert to go and convert that program in 20 minutes. It would have taken me like a day. And uh, it's just like for stuff like that, it's mind blowing that even it gets it the 95% mark for me. And it does do weird things. Like it just disappears some of your code that is super, super niche that like you're doing something weird that it doesn't have any example like it. So like you you need to know about that stuff, but it's going to be interesting in 10 years. Like once your intern that doesn't really care that you have to watch their shoulder that intern's going to grow up into like someone that's better potentially than you are at programming <laughs> and is never wrong. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, timeline question is always uh, interesting. Like depending on who you ask, it feels like the prediction for when that's going to happen sometime between the next 500 years and the next 500 minutes, the AI is going to be <laughs> like superhuman intelligence. And like something I like to remind myself of is I definitely think it is a safe assumption that at some point, there will be some super intelligent AI that for so the consensus is like, yeah, this is a super intelligent thing that we would hear. But we don't know when that's going to happen. And I think that statement has been true for the past at least 50 years. And I'm being pretty conservative there. It's like maybe even in the past 100 years. I think once we started making computers, you already started seeing like science fiction about that stuff. So the idea that it would happen eventually has been on people's minds for a long time. And the question of how far at this exact minute, how close are we to that? Like, what are the capabilities going to be of these systems as they come out is very prone to overly optimistic timelines, I think. If you remember, I mean, this was, I don't know, six to 12 months ago, something like that, maybe like nine months ago or something when like GPT-4 came out. I remember a lot of people saying the next few weeks, we're going to see that everything's going to be upended. It's like, no, it wasn't. None of those predictions look wise in retrospect. Like anything that was talking about the world of software is going to be 100% different and just like unrecognizable in a matter of weeks or even months, it was all completely wrong. The world of software is 100% recognizable to what it was back then. We have new useful tools. They're very helpful. I like them. I, I appreciate that I have them. They help me do my job better and faster. But it's extremely recognizable. <laughs> it looks almost the same to an outside observer. Like if you had somebody whose job was just to walk around and watch programmers do their job, 
and you ask them to summarize, and like they're not a programmer, and you ask them to summarize like what changed, they'd be like, oh, there's this new website people are going to on a regular basis. You know, it's, it's a new, it's like a new like Stack Overflow competitor or something. I don't know. People type stuff into it, and it gives them this thing back, and they you know copy paste it into their editors, and it's like, yeah, I, I guess Copilot. They'd be like, people use autocomplete a lot more, but isn't it? Doesn't, I think at some point this will change, but it doesn't feel like we've already crossed the threshold until programming is unrecognizable, which a lot of people were like literally predicting six to nine months ago would have happened by now. I'd be interested because like my, my thought when you're saying that is, yeah, I totally agree. But like when I was born in 1990 and we got our first computer in our house when I was in grade four, which what makes me like, that might be 2000-ish, 1990. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't really know. Sounds about right. So like from like the time when I had my first computer or the family computer till like now has been two decades. And like that change has been, it seems like unfathomable. Like we went from, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. went from like, not, yeah. like a computer not being in the house. And like when you did your projects in elementary school, you'd go to your encyclopedia. We had a yep. set of yep. the Britannicas or whatever. And, and not even every family had one of those. Like, and I remember we got a CD, a CD encyclopedia at one point. And I just thought that was freaking awesome because. You didn't need to go to the right book. And then like every once in a while, the entry just wasn't there. And I was like, well, how am I, I guess I got to go to the library. Right. Like, and we went from that to like, I now have a supercomputer in my phone and right. I'm daily ha- asking questions to this like, AI and social media and everything. So my, my thought is like, you know, what happened when the internet, when was the internet? Did that come out in the eighties or like, you know, when did, when did that start to be commercialized? And like how many people were saying like, you know, saying, oh, this is going to change the world. And like, what did it look like for the first 12 months, 24 months? And then like versus 10, 20 years. Cause like I would guess that in both of our lifetimes, like that same shift is gonna happen again with like LLMs or whatever the next installation of yeah. LLMs are. Like the speed at which it happens. Like my so my question is like, I wasn't around for when the internet came out, but my guess is that there was a bunch of people that were decrying the exact same thing, right? That they were saying, just wait, you know, everything's gonna be completely different. And they probably were right, just on the wrong timeline. And that's what I mean about I think the timeline question is like a big question. Because I mean, this was something I asked myself when I was came up with the idea for rock in 2018. 2018 was when I decided I was going to do it. I started like designing the language. And one of the questions I asked myself was, because at the time, I think maybe GPT-1 existed. I think that was like kind of on my radar, but it really did not make a big splash yet at the time. But self-driving cars were a big topic of conversation. So there was definitely still a lot of talk about like AI machine learning in general. I remember thinking, is there any point in making a new programming language or, you know, because it's going to take like five years before it's like usable-ish or practical stuff, like assuming things go well, which turned out to be approximately right in terms of timeline, which is kind of wild. But I, I remember thinking like, I think we're still going to be programming in five years. I think that's still going to be a thing. And I think that was a consensus opinion at the time. That wasn't <laughs> me being off in a, like a weird dissenting voice on that topic. But But I definitely remember like there were even back then there were some people saying things like, you know, in like five, 10 years, you know, we're not going to be programmed. I guess it hasn't been 10 years yet since 2018. So it's not late. Maybe it will happen in the next five years. But even I I still don't think that's the right timeline. It also seems like inevitably at some point we will not still be using what we would recognize today as programming languages. But I don't know how far away we are from that, but I don't think it's five years. I think it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a a crystal ball, but I mean, I would say that over the last 50 years, people like what programming is, has drastically changed. You know, at at one point people actually used to write like ones and zeros. You know, I I said that once on a podcast on a Raycast and then they were like, no, they didn't. And I was like, no, I get, that's like exactly like there's a story of 
I think it was Paul Allen or Bill Gates. One of the two was flying down to, you know, somewhere in Texas and they forgot or something crashed. And so, you know, luckily he had the, the whole program like memorized in his head or he knew the op codes and what they converted to. And so he literally just was typing ones and zeros. And then we went from that to assembly and then from assembly, like I think Jack Rusher gave this talk uh, at Strange Loop and uh, he goes from like assembly to APL. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think programming is going anywhere. I think it's just the same way that it, we went from ones and zeros to assembly to C to Python. And the new programming in the future is going to be just prompt engineering. It's just going to be, you say, hey, I want this. And in that world, the same way today that there are people programming in assembly and at lower levels of the stack, there are still going to be engineers that program at the lower levels of the stack. But the majority of folks, the same way that people use Python today, are going to be doing uh, prompt engineering. I mean, to the extent that like, how much do you even need to learn if the LLM becomes like an expert system in understanding what you mean, right? Like if you can just speak English and it doesn't even matter how precise you are or like what lexicon you use, as long as, you know, you can see the results generate some tests and it, it, it's good enough. You know, obviously for self-driving cars and stuff, you're not, <laughs> you're not going to be loosey-goosey on because when uh, people's lives are on the lines. But um, to a certain extent, if you're just building some little game for yourself or some little, that's definitely going to be good enough. And it's going to unlock 7 billion people in the world uh, that are going to go from not programming to programming, which, yeah, it sounds weird to talk about it right now when that's not the state of things. But I'm sure there were people back when like assembly was being written being like, oh, you know, there's no way that like, everyone's going to be using C in the future. And it's just just the same way that you said languages don't ever become popular or like new languages don't become popular. Like go back 10 years, you know, successfully. That's always what's happening, right? Yeah. Things are changing. Uh, And and I definitely, I strongly agree with the point about growing the pie, at least in the short term. And and that's not to say it'll like necessarily change in the medium term or whatever, at least for right now. It definitely seems that what LLMs are doing is making it so that People who otherwise would just have no ability to create software are able to create software that's useful to them without getting any expertise. And I know some people might think like, that's bad. People need to be experts, like whatever. But like, there's plenty of people in my life who are not programmers and who would benefit from having some custom made software. But like, A, they're not ever going to be willing to pay somebody the amount of money it would cost to get like high quality software made. And B, they don't have the time, like maybe they have kids they're not going to have the free time to go and just like learn about this thing to the point of having enough expertise. So prior to LLMs, what they would do is just not have that software. They would just go on with their lives and be like, oh, well. But now there's some category of things where they can go to ChatGPT and say like, hey, I'm not going to know what any of it means, but generate for me a Python program that does this very custom specific thing that I need it to do. And maybe for their use case, that's good enough. And it's much better than them having zero software. And that doesn't steal anyone's job. It's like they either wouldn't have had it ever. I'm reminded of, this is not LLMs, but at some point I was looking for a new editor for this podcast for various reasons. And this was a big factor. And so there were a couple of different services that said, hey, we'll do AI cleaning of your podcast and we'll take out the ums and ahs and that's it. And that was the main thing I was looking for is just a little clearing your throat, you know, or awkward pauses. <laughs> is now what you, know. you just said going to be, and they took out, Okay, funny you should mention that because I tried one of these AI services, which of course are priced very low because they don't have a human editing it. And that was exactly what happened was I I listened to the episode and there are these like really awkward false positives where you'd be mid-sentence and I'll I'll simulate one here or you'd be mid and I'll simulate one here, right? It's like there's just the word would just disappear and because they thought it was uh, an um or an ah or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can just go back in and fix it. And then it turns out that like, 
re-adding something, at least with my very, very limited experience of like editing audio files, you know, it's actually much easier to delete something than it is to put something back in that got, you know, unintentionally clipped. So it's like, okay, well, they have a tuning thing where you can say like, what's the threshold? So like, let's slow that down a little bit. Then I listen to it. It's like, well, now there's way too many of these ums and ahs and awkward pauses and stuff. And so at some point I was sort of like, okay, for what I'm comfortable with, (laughs) for like a podcast that I want to listen to, this is not doing it. So I end up, you know, shelling out for a, a service that actually has human editors. But there's probably somebody out there for whom they're like, I'm not going to pay that much for a human to edit my podcast. Either my podcast is going to have no editing. Maybe the, the AI one is affordable enough for their set of trade-offs that they're like, yeah, I will pay that much thing. But I don't see that as, you know, at least in that specific example, as taking a job away from a human editor because either the human editor wouldn't have gotten the business because it costs too much or they would have gotten the business because the person was like, well, I, I actually do want that level of you know, cleaning quality. And maybe there's somebody who's like, either one would be acceptable to me and so i'll choose the cheaper option maybe some of that will happen but at least in my particular scenario it was it was a non-issue yeah i I think that's a lot of people make that mistake is they think this is going to be the disappearing of jobs when it's it's like you said the pie growing bigger like for instance my my father's a journalist and he does not have any programming abilities but he talks to me all the time about how he wishes he could do the data journalism side of things where if you need to go and collect a bunch of pdfs or you know sec filings and you need to scrape a bunch of information, like even for a human to go and do that, it is an incredible amount of work. And so you can pay these companies that do all this cleaning of financial statements and whatnot. And you have to pay like a pretty penny in order to get this stuff because usually it's hedge funds and stuff that are operating on this. But as a journalist, like you can use this to infer things about shady business operations. But like imagine in the future, like, so this is, you know, my father who's a journalist that isn't programming, but if he can go to some sort of LLM, and currently right now, they're not good enough because it says, oh, well, here's the beautiful soup, you know, script that you need to run. And then oh, he's like, OK, like he looks at it and he's like, all right, well, you know, it's showing me, you know, what I need to do, but I still don't know anything to get started. Right? It's too much work. But imagine a system in the future, which is just basically like a little Jarvis AI system that says, hey, go and aggregate all this information. What I want to know is specifically between these dates and blah, blah, blah. And like, you with a certain amount of certainty, like get the correct answer. And like that is going to be enabling, there's no longer going to be journalists and data journalists. It's just going to be journalists because you don't need the specialization of a skill set of like going and getting all this data. So like there's going to be, that's just one example, but all these different occupations that could benefit from this kind of stuff that you're mentioning, it's going to be like a billions of people became programmers, not like of the hundreds of millions that exist. We're now down to, you know, 10,000 being rendered uh, useless. So. There's more programmers now because we've expanded what the definition of programming is. At least, you know, that's my hope. Uh, I could be wrong. And potentially we could all be unemployed in 10 years. And uh, I will look back to this fondly about my optimism about the future. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I I agree with you. I I think in 10 jobs, uh, 10 years, we will still have jobs. But if not, uh, you know, we'll we'll look back and and, and have a good laugh about this. (laughs) I want to go back briefly to something that you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned that you had a Python program, and of course, you know Python, you use it at work and work on Python libraries. And then you also use C++ at work. But what you were having ChatGPT generate was Rust rather than C++ to make the Python go faster. And I was kind of curious, what, what was the reasoning for having it generate Rust, even though you're not you know, that familiar with Rust compared to C++? So this was a, for a personal project, which probably answers that question mostly. And I should also say that like ever since moving to Search uh, over a year ago, I would say I program Python more than anything now. Hmm. And I I use Python to generate 
every other language that I'm trying to write in, uh, Rust, C++, mm-hmm. Swift, et cetera. Because I think I'll, I'll give a talk at some point in the future called like Python is a superpower because I just think Python is amazing at what it does. Anyways, why I chose Rust was because I actually like Rust better than C++, even though I don't know Rust as well. And so I think it's just fun to uh, target Rust now compared to C++. And I also think that languages like Rust are going to, they're going to win for many reasons. But one of the reasons now in this LLM world is that a language, a statically typed language in that space that has more compile time guarantees is going to end up being a better fit for these LLM models because the corpus of code that exists for Rust versus C++ is more bug-free than it is for C++ code. And you can do tricks and stuff to ignore the buggy code in C++, but in general, like the tooling that comes with Rust, I, you know, generated the Rust code and I got a bunch of errors. Half of the things that the compiler told me, like I didn't need to go and like figure out, okay, what happened wrong? The compiler just told me like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It basically just holds your hand while you sort out the couple issues. Whereas, right. I, you know, I actually haven't done the same experiment with C++, but just from having, you know, coded in C++ now for almost a decade, I know that even as an expert, half of the time, the error messages are, they're painfully like working against you. I don't know how many days as a C++ professional, like I've just been frustrated. Like I'm this expert and I'm even using like the libraries and stuff that I'm an expert in. And like, I literally, if you go and it's not a a public repo yet, but there's, there's a file that I have called why I switched to python.md. And I have this like C++ code that I was trying to use uh, ranges which is basically kind of like a Java streams or like, I don't know what the other, like Rust iterators, if you're familiar with those, sort of composing, sure, yeah. you know, uh, someone once referred to it on Oxide and Friends as the mappy foldy way of programming, and <laughs> uh, which I really like. And I was trying to do this in C++ and I was like 40 minutes in and I was like, my God, like I know in Python, it doesn't look as nice, but it's just like a dot join and a dot split, you know, and another dot join. And it's like <laughs> one line of code. It's not the way I want it to look, but I know how to write it. And then I was just like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to, like from my C++ code, call like a system function that invokes a Python script that does this. And then, you know, reads to a file. It was, it was so hacky. But like I went from failing to get this thing to compile in C++ for 40 minutes to like having it work in 30 seconds in Python with this hack. Then I realized like, why am I trying? And I, I, the stuff that I was doing in C++ was literally like bleeding edge, C++ 23, black magic using like, template metaprogramming libraries to store what should be like dynamic information in tuples at compile time and building stuff on the fly. Like I remember talking to my boss about it and he's like, why are you doing all this? And I was, I was just like, well, you know, I want to do this in C++. And he's like, you know, probably could be a simpler path here, especially if, if this <laughs> is just like a research thing and we're just trying to explore. Anyway, so I went from C++ to Python and never looked back. And in general, if you're writing in Python and you need something to go faster, I think that long answer long is that the more guarantees a language that has static typing and is compiled comes with, the better your generated code is going to end up being. And for the pieces that you miss, when the tooling is that good, I don't even really need to know Rust that well. The compiler will just say, hey, this is what you want, this is what you want. And not to mention that you said all languages come with a package manager. C++ does not. C++ has like three different package managers to choose from. It's not a great story. Say what you will about, you know, making it really easy to upload packages and the quality of code, et cetera, et cetera. But the nice thing is, is like one of the functions that ChatGPT hallucinated was this haversign geographic like distance between two longitude and latitude points. And it just made that up. 
But then like I just went right back to ChatGPT and it's like, ah, it looks like that doesn't exist. Is there a library that doesn't? It was like, sure, go to crates.io and blah, blah, blah. And it like it actually said, just go add this to like your cargo.tumble file, run this command. And I was just like, wow, thanks, fantastic. Like you were wrong, but somehow you had all the information in your, your, uh, your database and it handed it to me when I asked it for it. And the equivalent in that in C++ is like, go set up Conan, figure out how to modify your CMake file. Oh, also become relatively, you know, novice uh, build engineer, uh, you know, start asking about CMake. <laughs> right. And it's just like, no, thanks. I'd rather, you know, if Rock is aimed in that direction of like making plugins and tooling, like, you know, like a first class kind of thing, like that is the success path in my, I think the best thing that C++ could do would be to create a CPP up, like the same thing that Rust up does, where it goes and installs all my formatting and linters and all that tooling stuff. Choose one of the package managers, Conan, VC package, whatever. Just give me a single command line that does everything that Rust up does for me. Because like, when I first did Rust up, I like cried inside. I was like, oh my goodness, like C is done. Like the pain that it is to get started with C if you're not going to gobble.org, it's like, you know, 100 times harder than Rust because it's a single command and you're done. Anyways, that was a super long winded answer to why Rust over C. But uh, no, that makes sense. I was wondering if it had something to do concerned that the generated code was like if you're having an llm generate c code versus rust code the negative consequences of what could happen if it gets it wrong would be i would imagine a lot higher with the c code or in terms of like how hard it could be to debug and figure out what was wrong yeah like rust it's probably just going to be compile error but in c it could be like seg fault like oh great okay now <laughs> now what yeah i always forget i can look it up though because i recall that i also forgot when I was talking to my boss, Michael, that Sean Parent, who's a luminary in the C++ industry, gave a talk at C++ on C, where he was using a proof language to do something. Daphne was the language that he was using. And yeah. it's just sort of, I think, a, another anecdotal example of how these languages with you know, all these guarantees. So like, you can only write correct Daphne programs. It's part of the, like, it's impossible to write a wrong program. program. <laughs> As of this, like, even though there's, I don't know how much Daphne code out there in the world, but he, he was trying to do this manually and he couldn't figure out the constraint that he needed in order for this example to work. Then he went and asked ChatGPT and it instantly got the constraint that it was missing. And he hypothesized that the reason for this was that it only correct Daphne code exists in the world. It is impossible for like an LLM that's a generative model to look at the corpus of Daphne code and then give you the wrong answer because there's only right answers out there. And it was implicit in his example that working with these kinds of languages obviously is more difficult than with a language like Python where everything's dynamic and interpreted. And so introduce a bug and well, you'll find out about it later. But like right. some combination of these easy explorative languages say, hey, can you turn this into a correct program? I think there's definitely anything there where like you're getting the best of both worlds, like the malleability of these dynamic interpreted languages with the guarantees of these safe languages by sort of like, I'm not sure if it's writing in one and then compiling into another or something like that. But I just, I think it's like an interesting observation and, and that like languages that are bug prone out there today, like C++, it's just going to be like another nail in their coffin if they don't come up with a solution for this, because how are they going to compete with like extremely fast programs that are guaranteed to be correct and avoid all these bugs versus the status quo of today? Like, I, I could be wrong once again. I'm just... Yeah. Well, two interesting points on that note. Um, one is having to do with how difficult it is to get into a new programming language. That seems to have gone down considerably thanks to LLMs because 
you know, Daphne's not like a mainstream language. The corpus out there, you know, can't be that big. Here was somebody who was able to put into ChatGPT or whatever, say like, hey, I'm stuck on this thing in Daphne as a beginner. Can you get me unstuck? It's like, here you go. No problem. And that's always, I think, something that has been a historical barrier to getting into new programming languages. You do something, you get stuck. And, you know, kind of the best way historically to get unstuck is to ask someone somewhere who knows yeah. the language and hopefully they <laughs> respond promptly and care about your question and answering it. And it might be like, if it's a forum, it might be they get back to you in hours or days. If it's like on a you know chat place, uh, maybe the person who responds is nice. Maybe the person isn't. But now it's like, no, you just, you just get an answer right away. You get unstuck. You just keep, keep going and keep learning. So that's a big deal. And the other one is being able to port you know, we were talking about ecosystems earlier, being able to port stuff from existing languages and their ecosystems over. So this is kind of a funny example for me because so in Elm, I wrote the Elm ISO 8601 date parsing thing because there wasn't one and I needed one. So I wrote one and I haven't looked at that code in probably like four years or something. I don't know. But lo and behold, we were doing some rocket work and I needed ISO 8601 date strings to be parsed. And I was like, I know who did that in a very similar language to rock. So although I had actually learned a lot about parsing since then, so I, the parsing part I actually implemented like in a different way using some new tricks that I've learned. But then of course, I wanted all the tests. So what I did was I just, I literally took one of the tests in my Elm code base and I converted it by hand to rock. And then I pasted all the other ones in and then said, hey, chat GBT, here's an example of this test converted from Elm to rock. Convert all these to rock. And it just did it. And I was like, great, now I have all the tests in rock and I can, I, I like visually verify that they, you know, <laughs> did it correctly because that's always important. But that saves me a lot of time of having to translate that chunk of code over. And I think if you can get the tests ported over, which I certainly was able to, that quickly, and then you can get an implementation that maybe works, but has some bugs ported over, like in your example, like maybe it'll take me some time to fix the bugs in the, you know, the hallucinations, whatever, porting the code over. That's still a huge time savings compared yeah. to just rewriting the whole thing from scratch. Yeah. And I, that is, I think that a potential game changer in terms of new languages being able to quickly, you know, get an ecosystem up and running that's like sufficiently big that it addresses a lot of people's use cases. Yeah, it makes me think too, like imagine a future world where the cost, a frictional <clears throat> cost of going from language A to language B becomes like almost zero because these LLM models, you know, they're already very good at this stuff. And if we start figuring out how to, give them like expert information, like here are all the libraries that are good, here's et cetera. That like, what language do you end up targeting at the end of the day? Like it's going to be the one that is, maybe not, but there is an argument to be made that like the safest, most, you know, proof guaranteed one, that's the one that you want to target at the end of the day. It's like, okay, we'll write it this way. And then when we try and switch, it'll surface all these bugs and say, well, I don't know how to convert this to Daphne because <laughs> you have like a logical error here, which, you know, mm, can't represent. Like I said, I, you probably don't want to program in that language once it has all these strictness. That I think is one of the superpowers of Python that people don't talk about is like a lot of the times when you're just writing throwaway code or you're just trying to get something done, I don't want to have to fight with a static type system. I love static type systems. I love Haskell. I love even C++, the fact, you know, how strong or whatever it is. But just like sometimes you don't actually care. Like on one of my internal projects, like I run my pie and there's like eight or 10, like always existing, like, wow, this should be a string when it's an int, but like I'm passing it to like an F string at the end of the day and it's going to get formatted. It doesn't matter whether it's a string and an int. Yeah. And like, technically my program is not type correct, but like for my purposes, it works and I'm able to move faster 
by not doing things like 100% statically correct. And like there is power in a dynamic typing system that allows you to just kind of like not be perfect. And uh, sometimes you need that perfection if you're doing automated programming and lives are on the line. But like I, there nobody's going to die based on this little script right. that I'm writing. And sometimes it's just nice to be able to move that fast. And like that's what I don't miss at all, even about Rust and definitely not about C++ is like the speed at which I can program. Like in, in array languages, there's this phrase coding at the speed of thought. And like, mm-hmm. it's like when you said, when you're trying to get that JSON schema thing working and you're 40 minutes into it and you're just like, ah, this would have been, but like what you want to do in your head is simple. And it's like, how quickly can I get it out of my head and into code? And it's like, when you pass this point, it's just like, why am I still on this problem? Like I know how to spell this in Elm or whatever your go-to language is. And it's like, I'm trying to spell it yeah. some, in some other way. You know, this shouldn't be as hard as it is. And, uh, you know, that is, it's interesting because a lot of array languages are dynamically typed and like, I prefer static typing yet, like out of my top five languages, like four of them are dynamically typed <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's stuff usually I'm only doing for fun. But, um, but still, I just, I think that there's something to be said about programming languages that let you go very, very quickly at the cost of yes, bugs and mistakes and stuff. But sometimes you don't need to worry about that stuff. Yeah. Not, not, not every use case has the same trade-offs. I remember in a past episode, I was talking with someone who does a lot of data science and like hangs out in like Jupyter notebooks all the time. And you know, it's kind of talking about like, what maintainability are you talking about? Like, I'm literally doing experiments. The whole reason I'm writing this code is to get an answer. And once I have the answer, all of the code is garbage. It's yeah. I just I throw it away and never look at it again. So like, I don't, you know, maintainability is not a factor. The, the only factor is like, how quickly can I explore? And yeah, like that's, you know, <laughs> another reason that I, I'm a little bit, you know, un- unclear on the value of a language like Rock to at least f- for that use case. One other thing on, on topic of LLMs that I was very surprised by recently that I, I hadn't really considered is, so I tried out Copilot very early on when it came out. I should probably give it another try, but I was very frustrated by the experience of it auto-suggesting things to me as I'm typing because I just found it very distracting and usually wrong. So it was basically like my normal workflow is like an idea in my head for like the code I want to write. I write the code. If there is an autocomplete that appears, I will, you know, very constrained. And it's like, cool, I'll pick from among these options. This is what I want to autocomplete to. And also the autocomplete is very predictable. It's like a little box. It's going to appear here. Every time I press a dot, I know when it's coming. It's not distracting at all. And I, I just appreciate it. There's the copilot autocomplete, which is basically like whenever I'm typing anything, it might make a potentially very large chunk of code appear on my screen and basically ask me yes or no, do you want to accept this? And so what I found was that my mental process would just be constantly interrupted by code review time. Code review, do you accept this? Is code good? How about this? How about this? I'm I'm trying to to write something here. It's like, no, code review. Stop what you're doing. Code review. Code review now. And at some point I was like, okay, some of the times the answer to the code review is yes and I accept it and that's helpful and saves me time. But if I zoom out and look at what is the net effect of this, it's that like I'm just constantly distracted. And it's just like definitely I'm less productive with this enabler. Now, granted, I appreciate that that was true for you know like the type of I was work I was doing at that time. There have been other times in my career where like what I was doing was like I already know, generally speaking, what I'm building here. And like the thing that's gonna be the most time consuming is just kind of like blasting through just generating a particular variance like going through the motions of something i've done before and i don't do as much of that type of stuff these days but it's still like very valuable work that needs to get done and so i i appreciate that if like a higher percentage of my job were doing that then 
I would maybe not care about the distractions as much. And maybe I would enable it and then maybe turn it off when I'm switching into a different mode of like what I'm working on. But I was pair programming with a coworker recently and he was doing some rock for the first time. Like he'd never used rock before. So there was a lot of cases where he just like didn't know what to write next. And so that's why I was there to you know help him out. And so I didn't know this part of the code base that he was working on. So he's like, okay, you know, how do I, it's like porting some TypeScript stuff to rock. And so he's like, okay, how do I like do this? And I was like, oh, okay, so let's, let's pull out a function and name it this. And then he writes equal and copilot just auto suggests like an implementation for that function based on the name of the function that he wrote. I realized, and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's almost correct, except that it got the syntax a little bit wrong because it thinks that this is Elm and not rock. <laughs> Basically, like, you know, it, it's looking at the rock syntax and like it has a much bigger Elm corpus than a rock co- corpus. So it, you know, implemented it using the Elm thing. I was like, the rock thing is a little bit different. What I realized was that that's actually a big time savings for me as a pair programmer, because rather than my saying, okay, here's what I need you to write this and then this and then this and then this, I can just be like, oh, that's almost right. Just, you know, do this like, do this little tweak to it. And it occurred to me that the difference is that when I'm pair programming, all the time what I'm doing is real-time code review. Like <laughs> that's that's exactly what I'm doing. So like the fact that it appears and it's like review this code, it's like that's what I was doing anyway. It's not a context switch. It's just right. I, <laughs> that's the whole purpose of my like looking at your screen in real time. And so that was really cool. I, I had not considered it for that use case as something that would be as useful as it turned out to be. Yeah. I, and I've never used uh, Copilot. I've, I've only used HTTP. Does Copilot, or at least your experience with it, with whatever version it was at the time, does it allow one priming and two follow-up questions? Like, because that's what I love about ChatGPT. It's like, I can prime it with like, all right, let me give you some info first. And then when it gives me its answer, I can be like, yeah, 80%, but uh, go more like, can you do that in Copilot or no? So Copilot chat just came out and I have like one day of experience with it. And uh, it is closer to chat GPT, uh, but I actually haven't, I haven't tried to go back and forth with it yet. So far, I've just asked it like one question. So I actually don't know the answer to that yet, but I guess like I'll, I'll know the answer soon probably because now I'll just like try it right Interesting. after this probably. Um, but prior to that, it was like when it originally came out, it was basically just like autocompleted. Like the, the, the code will just appear in gray. And so it's like, you just press tab if you want to accept it or just keep typing to ignore it. They also, they also had a mode where you could use like a context menu to say like, hey, generate me a couple of suggestions. That's not like as you're typing. That was, of course, not interruptive, but the problem was that they didn't have an in-between mode, which is what I really wanted, which is like, I really just wanted, I'm feeling lucky where I'm like, <laughs> like right now, like show me the gray thing. Don't show me it as I'm typing. Like show me it only when I ask for it. But the problem was that it was either as I'm typing or generate me like 10 options, which takes several seconds. And I'm like, I don't want to wait that long. You know, I, what I want is like, give me the very quick what you think is, you know, goes here, but only when I ask for it. And I haven't checked to see if they uh, added that option yet. Actually, I should check that too. But so, so what I had been doing is just like using ChatGPT for that. But but promise of Copilot compared to ChatGPT is I'm actually not sure what model they're using. It definitely used to be 3.5, but maybe they're on 4 now. But the really nice thing is like, you know, you don't have to copy paste code into like get get that context in there. You can just be like, oh, I, I already have this whole file right here. So I already have all the context that I need loaded up of at least the, the code perspective. And it'll do things like looking at comments. Um, like you can just say like, you write this function, you put a comment that says like, do this thing. And then it'll just suggest like an implementation that, you know, does that thing, give or take hallucinations, et cetera. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely gotten more useful than it was when it started out. Although I'm not sure if, if that a big annoyance has gone away yet. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I can imagine that. 
I mean, it's like a, what do they call it? LSP autocomplete kind of thing. But instead of autocompleting on just uh, several different function names, it's, <laughs> it's giving you like a whole bunch of code, which, uh, you know, I could see how that would be very irritating. It, it's like autocomplete, not yeah, an email, except it doesn't just give you a word or two. It says, oh, are you, I saw you talking about the weekend. Would you like this whole paragraph? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's like I had that. ideas. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, we, we talked about a bunch of stuff. Anything else we should make sure to cover before we wrap up? No, not on not on this topic. I mean, uh, we could probably do a whole other 10 episodes about different topics. But uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. in this space, I feel like I'm just guessing about the future. So uh, if you're listening, robots, just uh, know that I support you and uh, would like to be a part of you know, your dominance and supremacy in the future. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much. And I guess we're going to do an episode on your podcast too. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. If you're listening to this on Software Unscripted, go check out uh, ADSP and T minus, I don't know, two or three weeks once it gets released. Uh, we'll be probably, I mean, probably we'll be just chatting about rock. And I think actually we might chat about Strange Loop because you were at the uh, the final installation of that it conference. Was. Uh, but yeah, we will we will chat on a different platform in the future. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks, Connor. Have a good one.